Welcome to PR for Humans, the podcast for interesting communicators and people who are interested in communications. Each week I'm talking to someone about a different aspect of communication and using their insights in PR for Humans, the book I'm currently writing. You can find out more on my website, sergeantsleaders.com. You spell sergeant just like the police and the army do. This week we've got a real treat. I'm here with Marcia Williams. Hello, Marcia. Hello. Marcia is author and illustrator of wonderful children's books, and if you have kids of a certain age, you will certainly have some of Marcia's books in your home. There are quite a lot of them. How many? How many books now? Is it? Is it? I think there are about sixty. I can hardly believe it. But, Extraordinary. Uh, and these are these. We've got some on the table in front of us here. They're brilliant retellings of classic tales from Shakespeare to the Greek myths to Canterbury Tales to, to war stories. Um, illustrated in, in such a clear, vibrant and, and, and lucid way. And the reason I was keen to come and talk to you, to Marcia, and have you on my podcast is that I'm, I'm very interested in visual storytelling coming from a television background, and you're one of the best there is, and uh, you find ways of cutting through and reaching incredible, incredibly large audiences, particularly young people. So, so let's begin with you maybe describing what you do, and then we'll talk about how you do it. Okay, so um, most of my books are in comic strips. Some are scrapbooked, like The War Stories, Archie's War and Floss's Secret War Diary. Um, But I started doing comic strips when I was a child at school, and um, we had to write letters home, and I found that really boring. So I used to send comic strip stories home, and um, I wasn't allowed comics as a child, so... It was a way of getting back at my mother, I suppose, and also passing the time um, that we were meant to spend writing letters. And then I just went on doing it and realised it was a wonderful way of telling stories. And I used to do it um, for my friends. I used to tell the story of their lives in comic strips and things like that. And then later I started doing it for books, and um, I still do, and I'm still as passionate about it. And why is visual storytelling so so powerful and so important for children, but for everyone, I suppose? Well, it's. I think, I mean, visual storytelling started before the um, written storytellers, and um, I think it's a way of making stories accessible. And um, again, when I was a child, my mother was passionate about me reading all the classics, but there were very few children's books in those days, so I was reading adult versions of all the classics and the Greek myths and things, and I found it incredibly hard. And for a long time, it put me off reading. So when I had my own children started reading to them, I realised that these were brilliant stories. And um, so I wanted to make them accessible for children like me who really enjoy the visual as much as the written word. Um, and also if you're simplifying a story um, or trying to make it accessible you don't want to lose the richness of it because something like a Greek myth story they're just so incredibly rich and vibrant and I maybe have um, 20 words to a page or something and without the pictures I think it would lose a lot So That's interesting so pictures are not necessarily a way of simplifying a story they're just a different way of telling a story and, and maybe you can get 
get away with or, or be able to include much more detail and much more complexity because of the visual dimension to the storytelling than you could if you were just trying to put it into words. Yes, no, I definitely think so. And also, you can... Um, you don't have to pussyfoot around the really difficult bits, the violence and um, the, you know, the really upsetting emotional things, particularly, for instance, in Archie's War, um, which is the story of the First World War, and some of the scenes and the things that Archie goes through are horrific, but because he's writing the story and he's doing a lot of that visually... Um, you can tell things that you couldn't put into words, really. Mm-hmm. The impact would just be too great. So you can you can tell it, but you can tell it in such a way that it's accessible and not too emotionally upsetting. You, you said that visual storytelling preceded or predated um, written storytelling. And yes, we think about to drawings on cave walls, but also... For the whole, most of the sweep of, of history, recorded history, when maybe most people couldn't read. And whether it's the Bayer Tapestry or scenes from the life of Christ in churches, the there's a strong history of, of, of visual storytelling in culture. And and we do you consciously try to echo any of that? Or I mean I think look at your books and I <coughs> do you think of the Bayer Tapestry a little bit? Um I definitely it informs my work. Um, I mean, I did a book on Greek myth, uh, no, Egyptian myths, and I very much took that from um, Egyptian visuals, which are which are fantastic, and um, I think they were probably the first comic strip artists, the ancient Egyptians, and um, so I'm very influenced by that. And very influenced in Greek myths by um, the illustrations on pottery. Uh, I definitely look to those sources. Um, and even when I was doing the Shakespeare tales, uh, I was lucky enough that they were rebuilding the Globe Theatre. And I really struggled with retelling the tales in a way that I thought was accessible and yet still held onto Shakespeare and the fact that these were plays, meant to be plays. I mean, they're stories, but they were meant to be performed. Um, and it was only by going to the Globe Theatre and being taken round there by um, an actor who was obviously passionate about the Elizabethan Theatre and he explained about, you know, the audience and the audience participation and what was going on in the theatre, and that gave me a whole feeling. I think it's not enough to just know about the story. You need to know what builds the story and where it comes from. Um, and you're looking for, for characters, I presume, as well. You want, you want characters to carry your, your stories, and you want to look for different characters and character types that you can include in your comic strips yes no definitely when um, for instance <coughs> I was doing Archie's War and Floss's Secret War Diary um, these are stories about families and those families um, lived with me and my family for the year I was telling them and we used to sit around on Sunday and discuss all the people in the family and what they'd been doing this week and um I miss them desperately when I'd finished because um, you really do live with them and you have to in order to be able to tell their story. And um, so, yes, and every every Shakespeare character 
um, you know, becomes your friend for the period of the book. And what's your your process of coming up with these these beautiful finished products? I mean, do, do you do you just start drawing? Do you have a structure mapped out? Do you write the words of the text first and then the pictures, or the other way around? Could you talk us through how you actually end up with with what you produce? Well, it's the hardest part is getting started always because every story has its own needs and its own wants and has to be told in a certain way. So it's not enough. I do, You know, you may say, oh, Master's comic strip books, but actually when I start, if maybe I'm asked to do a book about the Stone Age, um, I really have to think about the story and how the story needs to be told. Um, and that is very often the hardest bit is finding the voice for the story and um, so once I've done that I can start writing the writing always comes first because um, everything hangs on that and making the story is really important not to patronize you know when you're writing the story I'm not dumbing down stories I'm simplifying them and making them accessible and so, for instance, in a Shakespeare story, I may take out many of his plots um, in order to make the main story much stronger and more accessible. Um, but then I can enrich that with the pictures, and I can also um, make complicated things clearer in pictures so that I don't have to, you know, dumb... Our children will not read things that are patronising, definitely. That's interesting, and and you you know that from from your experience or things that you've tried, or there's just your sense of knowing children. I think it's everything. I I mean, I know if I read try and read a story to a, one of my children or my grandchildren, you know, if the author has um, been self indulgent or patronised, they're not interested. They just very soon get bored. Um, and that's good advice for storytelling to, to grown-ups and anyone else. I oh, I think well. definitely, yes. No, I think definitely. I think um, there's a huge difference between um, making something accessible and dumbing it down. And how do you know where that line is? I mean, because simpler is usually better in communications, but, you know, where, where is the, where's the buck come and how do you know, how do you test out you know, whether it's just better to take out another character, strip out another plot line, take out a page or two. I think, well, reading aloud is a huge um, benefit for that because as soon as you start reading something aloud, you can hear whether it's working or not or even reading it to an imaginary person if you haven't got somebody to read it to um, can help. I think it's instinct, really, and also having good editor helps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when it comes to the illustrations, you've got your own style, but you also adapt your style depending on the, the subject matter. So yes. how, how do you come up with with the, the particular um, visual identity for a, for a certain book? Um, well, it's got to reflect the um, subject matter. So it's no good, you know, doing Greek myths if I haven't really looked at um, Greek, Greek artefacts because um, part of the way I work 
is with the visuals. So they've got to reflect the story really closely. Um, and for instance, again, for Archie's War, which is told by um, a young boy of 10 years old, um, I really, I've got a, a playroom for my grandchildren in the house and um, I sat at their little desk and used their crayons and their glue and pretended I was Archie for a year. And um, so it's completely immersive. And then when I went on to write um, about the Second World War, which is told by a slightly older girl who has a lot more to say, I tried to do it in the same way, but she was not interested in keeping a, a scrapbook. She wanted to write a diary. And after, you know, three weeks, I discovered this, three weeks of scrapbooking, you know, you suddenly discover actually... This isn't the voice of the person. This is me imposing the voice. And um, so I had to start all over again and get a diary and write a diary. Um, and it's the same with every book. Uh, it's to do with the story. It's interesting what you say about the, the words coming first normally as well, because when I was a television reporter, we'd have to work with the pictures that we had on a given day. So often you'd, you'd imagine you, you'd the sequence of shots and the material you'd have for the whole of the two minute 30 piece. And you'd know the story of the day, but then you'd have to try and fit the words to the pictures. And, and the words had to match the pictures roughly. They couldn't be too far away from the pictures, certainly not for too long. You had to keep coming back to, even if it was the shot of you know, the Prime Minister getting out of the car or the conference or whatever's happened, you couldn't then start talking about something which was completely at odds with the pictures. Um, but then when I advise pe people in, in business, particularly around the use of PowerPoint, and that often they will just get their story, their bullet points down with no regard to the visuals and then try and throw in a few images to mm. sort of suit what they're trying to say. Um, but they don't. they can't do what you can do, which is to create their new visuals to match their words. So I, I just wonder whether you'd ever tried the process the other way around and put the pictures first and then tried to write to the pictures. Well, I definitely did in the um, two war books because there's only a limited amount of visuals that I could get. Um, and so... There's, I, f I found a picture, for instance, of Hitler stroking a dog. And um, it, this was a really good picture t because you can't, you can't imagine wanting a dog to be stroked, my dog being stroked by Hitler somehow. So it, was a, it had an emotional impact that a child could understand. And um, so I really wanted to write about that. But it's very unusual... Um, to do it that way round uh, but of course you can you can always, always make up a story around pictures it's what children do all the time and as adults these books are still useful for us if we want to quickly get our heads around the Greek myths or revise Shakespeare in, in 20 minutes or as I did the other day pick, a, pick up the, um, the book about the Romans and just remind myself of the sequence of events during, yes. during no. Roman times so very very useful and, and, and I guess you, you, you will have a lot of interest from, from adults and older people as well as children in your work I do and I, I mean it's one of the reasons why I try and be really faithful because I see myself as a stepping stone you know to the real thing as it were and um, I definitely one of, one of the 
most rewarding things is um, a few people have written to me and said that they're now doing classics degrees because they read Greek myths when they were a child and um, you know enjoyed it so much that they've gone on to do classics and that's amazing when you think that you might inspire somebody. Yes and uh, certainly I think of my oldest son and he's now doing Latin for the first time and really enjoying it but he had the foundation of knowing a lot about the Greek myths from your books and from other sources like the Percy Jackson books that you yes. enjoyed as well um, and I think that's, that's an amazing thing to, to do to interest young people in these subjects you think of Latin and if, you know, 10, 15 years ago people thought it was dying out and there's my son studying it and it's I probably know. his favourite subject now it's had thanks, thanks you know, in part to people it? actually making the effort to get him interested in these fantastic stories yes. which are timeless yes. stories and um, and he sees the reflections and we see them in, in the modern comics and DC comics and everything else that mm. of course all children love but, but the roots of the storytelling are are in the Greek myths. Yes, yes, many of the roots are. You're now writing um, a new novel that's coming out? In coming out next year, yes. And tell us a bit about that. Um, well, that's that started because I went to the V&A to look at a quilt exhibition and in the exhibition there was this tiny little, quite tatty now quilt that was made by the children who were in Changi Jail in Singapore during the war um, after um, Japan invaded Singapore. And they were all taken to Changi Jail. And I think the jail was meant for 300 um, prisoners and there were over 2,000 in there. And the conditions were absolutely appalling. They lived on boiled rice and they all had rickets and scurvy and all sorts of terrible things and there was very little for the children to do and very little for the adults to do and boredom was one of the big problems and um, so one of the women started a guide group and the children just loved this they did their guide badges they did wildflower badges and things like that and they decided that they'd make their guide leader this quilt um, as a thank you. And, of course, they had nothing. I think um, the woman that I, I met, um, Olga, she, her mother had taken needles into the prison, which um, was amazing. And so they had these needles, um, but they had to take the thread from the hems of their dresses and a lot of the um, hexagons were made from the hems of their dresses or begged off people because all the clothes rotted in the sun. And anyway, they also weren't allowed to gather in groups, otherwise the Japanese would um, be furious and they were very violent, the Japanese guards. And... Um, so the whole thing was problematic and really scary. But out of all this came this beautiful little quilt. And um, I really wanted to tell the story. Uh, but it took me ages to find a way because it's not an easy story to tell. And I wanted to relate it to something that happened um, 
today so that children could relate to it more easily. So the story of the quilt is actually told through letters and there's another story that goes alongside which is about friendship and loss. Mm. And that's a good device, using using letters for making it immediate and making it personal and allowing the the readers to connect with a, a character, is that... Um, I think in this case it was again it's just you know I I thought it would be a really easy story to tell because it's such an amazing story and you know the emotional impact for me to see the quilt um, was huge but actually it was a really tricky story to tell and it took me two years to find the way to tell it and it was actually I was um meeting a friend who lives in Hong Kong and her daughter uh, was very bored with us and so she was writing a letter to her kitten on the iPad and I remember looking at it and she she said dearest most lovely kitten (laughs) I love you so much and I miss you and I thought this is amazing you know this child is really writing to the cat as though it's a person and um, I realised that I could do that so the child in Changi Jail is secretly writing to the kitten that was just given to her before they went into Changi Jail. Mm, And those um, little moments of of inspiration sometimes come in unexpected places. Completely unexpected, Mm. and it might have taken me another two years to write the book if, you know. How do you search for the key that unlocks the story then? I mean, where... Do you just? <laughs> there's no easy answer. You, I don't think you can. I remember. I remember my editor telling me a story about Rosemary Sutcliffe, um, who wrote fantastic children's books, and she used to write about the Romans a lot. And she was writing a book about a Roman soldier. Um, I shared an editor with her, so my editor told me that when she'd finished the book, she. W- went to see Rosemary and Rosemary had polio and she was bedbound. and um, Wendy my editor said to her are you sad you finished the book and Rosemary said yes I'm, I'm really sad because every night the Roman soldier comes and stands by my bed and tells me the story mm. and now I've finished he doesn't come anymore <laughs> and <laughs> oh you know that's it is a bit like that. I'm not saying I have, you know, a child from the First World War coming and standing by my bed every night, but it it's very internal. Mm. And do you, you need to immerse yourself in one book, one topic at a time, or can you can you handle two or three at any one? No, no. I, no. It's one project, <laughs> one era, one one story, focus. Story. I think yeah. one focus. Yeah. And of all the books you've written, what, what's Yes, some sometimes things come easily, and sometimes they're, they're hard. And what's what's been the the easiest one to write, and what's been the the hardest one to finish? Okay, so the h- easiest one was definitely the first one I ever did because I had no idea how difficult it was to write for children then, and I was asked to do a book about the first Christmas, and I did it at my brother's kitchen table over Christmas. And um, I didn't think about it. And then after that, of course, you realise that life is not that easy and writing and illustrating for children isn't that easy. Um, And so it got harder and harder. And so the hardest, I think, probably 
was the Shakespeare book, finding a way to write the Shakespeare books was really difficult. Because these are all stories that we, we all know so well, or there's so much been written about them already? Um, what, was the, what was the... I think partly because my editor was very against it. She always said, you don't mess with the great bard, Marcia. <laughs> and <laughs> um, So that made me very nervous, and also because I think I wrote it... I, I did a comic strip version to begin with, um, and it, they didn't feel like plays. And I'd been brought up on Charles and Mary Lamb. And I f- found those really boring and had no sense that these were plays to be performed and how exciting they were. And um, so I really didn't want to do a modern retelling of Charles and Mary Lamb. I wanted to do um, a performance Shakespeare on the page. And um, so it was, as I say, only by visiting the um, Globe Theatre and then realising how much the audience was a part of it so the audience are now in the book um, and also all the characters speak Shakespeare's words um, whereas to begin with I was putting my own words in the bubble text which when I look back on it was appalling (laughs) I'm so glad you persevered with that project (laughs) and and with all your your other projects Marcia thank you so much for talking to me today and we're we're certainly big fans in, in the Sergeant household and I'm sure we'll be enjoying your books for years to come, even when the kids are grown up. They'll be referring to them. So thanks for this conversation and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you.